I say that every week, but that's true. I have got so much to go over. So let me get your attention. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Uh, and we're going to try to cover, um, we're certainly not going to cover everything I gave you here. Uh, one of the things we actually covered, so um, that was, this is really just a chart of what real repentance, uh, uh, godly sorrow that leads to repentance and worldly sorrow. Uh, it just distinguishes the two so you could see them. I like it. It's done in a, a visual, so you should find that there. It's the seven traits of true repentance and the seven traits of worldly sorrow. So that's what that, that's a nice little chart to help you to take a look at what, what does real repentance look like versus what is not real. And so you'll, you should see that in that one. And then hopefully you also have this nice little sheet that represents many marriages right here with the guy and the girl back to back rather than face to face. <laughs> so we're going to deal with the whole subject of principles for dealing with conflict. I'm going to give you that as well. That's probably what we're going to fo focus on and then after that, if I have time, you've got a more lengthier sheet there among your sheets that talks about the principles for dealing with debatable matters. Um, you know, like um, uh, I, um, issues like uh, I wrote some there on one of the paragraphs. Um, should believers have an occasional glass of wine? Should you allow your children to read Harry Potter books? Um, uh, or maybe over the issue of whether the NIV or the New American Standard ESV Bible translations are inferior to the King James. I remember I got accosted when I was a student at Moody by some King James only people. And they told me that Moody had gone completely liberal because they don't use the inspired translation, which is the King James. Now, there is no inspired translation. They're inspired in the original autographs. Translations are translations of the original autographs. But they were trying to get me in. So they're really, they're, they're, they were ready to fight me about that issue. Uh, is it proper for followers of Christ to play cards, play pool, attend movies, or for that matter, to own a TV? I even had a believer brother that believed that it was wrong for Christians to do that. Um, should there be no eating in the church, no running in the church, no clapping in the church, no laughing in the church, no drums in the church or guitars, and no fun in the church? Some believe that. Uh, some churches would say uh, you don't use any musical instruments but the voice. There are churches that believe that very strongly. And then, uh, of course, others believe you could use uh, piano, organ, and then they get radical and they go into rock and roll with the the lights and the flashing lights. And so the point is believers argue about these things. So in Romans chapter 14, in the early church, they would argue about dates and diet. Uh, dates because uh, is it, should a Jewish believer, now, now a Christian, now believing in the Messiah, is he still obligated to obey the festivals of Judaism or the Sabbath even. And there was arguments in the early church. And here's another one, diet. Um, you know, you live in Rome and it's possible that when you go to purchase meat in the marketplace in Rome, you might purchase meat that at one time was sacrificed to idols. 
So there was a movement in the church that said, don't eat meat at all, just vegetables. That way you keep from possibly eating meat served to idols. Well, the problem is uh, the, the other view was, hey, uh, all good things come from God. So let's pray and then pass me the steak. In other words, that so and so believers would clash in the first century. And here's a big one for us. Um, should you get the shot or not? In Christianity, hey, people argue, you know, about, hey, you shouldn't get that shot. There's, you know, this is happening and, you know, they're going to. Like when I got the shot, I had my doctor advise me to get the shot. For, for an hour, I felt like voting Democratic. <laughs> but it went away. So <laughs> I just wanted you <laughs> just to know. <laughs> I did. <laughs> so, so there's arguments. So how do we, what principles guide us through that so that we don't affect the unity of the body of Christ? You are never to affect the unity of the body of Christ over those kind of, they're called debatable areas because they're not clearly stated to be right or wrong in the scriptures. You can't say, thus saith the Lord, go ye and get the shot. It doesn't say that, or don't get the shot. Or go, or another one, should you vote for President Trump with all of his background character flaws and all of those other things, or should you not? You know, should you look for a man who's got greater character? In that case, vote for me. <laughs> There's nobody else I know. One, one, one time I voted for Doug Hayward. I really did. Uh, he obviously didn't get the job because he's still here. But the point is, yeah, there's arguments about that. You know, who do we, who do we vote for and, and stuff like that. So if, there, if we disagree, how are we to disagree so that we don't cause a conflict? So Paul devoted the entire 14th chapter of Romans to that subject because he was concerned about what went on. But at first, um, did I say I was going to pray? Let's do that. (laughs) Well, gracious Heavenly Father, uh, I come before you today and I ask for you to open the hearts of these dear people for the implanting of divine truth and may it flourish in their life. May there be a willingness of their heart to comply with your word. May there be a value uh, to make sure that they bring you glory by complying with your word. Uh, Give them the capacity through the indwelling of the spirit of God to help them to a better illumination of truth as well. And grant to me clarity of thought and speech uh, so that uh, I might be able to help them understand these things. And I pray that in Christ's name, amen. Let's talk about these principles first, this page, um, because we've been talking about, you know, the, how, how is it that you're going to repair relationships that have been damaged? Uh, and so here is uh, really principles of dealing with conflict. I might even say that they're, um, they serve as a deterrent if you use them to damaging the relationship. That's the purpose of these things. They're, they're designed to serve as a deterrent in, in the midst of conflict. Because all people, I don't, it, whether you're married or not married, just even friends, family, 
all people enter into conflict and believers are not excluded from that. We do as well. So how can we sort of diffuse things? How do we keep things from getting, we're going to show you the distinction between destructive and um, constructive conflict. How do we keep them from getting into destructive conflict? So I'm going to give you some principles about that. So let's do that. Uh, take a look at that paper, Principles for Dealing with Conflict. At the top there, it says, conflict can be placed into two different categories. The first is destructive con conflict, where disputes are mismanaged and the foundation of the relationship is greatly harmed because mutually accepted resolutions seem unattainable. That is destructive conflict. Uh, destructive conflict usually uh, is characterized by attacking the other person, their character, their looks, whatever you think will make you win the argument in the conflict. So it's destructive because the interesting thing about destructive conflict that I've noticed from counseling people when they're in it is it never deals with a real issue because each person is too, too busy defending themselves <laughs> from the fires of the, So in other words, you could picture two ships with cannons and they're firing at each other. <clears throat> Something's gonna get destroyed. Uh, and if that happens in a relationship, it's the relationship that gets destroyed. Uh, the second type reading on is constructive conflict. This can be helpful because it challenges the existing norms and practices and relationally and hopefully prompts constructive changes that enhance the bonding and the quality of the relationship. Um, someone might say to their mate in marriage, honey, I think, I think we're in a rut. I think we need to think about changing some things. Or, you know what, I don't, I don't think we get enough time with each other. I think we need to talk about how we can maybe set aside a, a lunch date during the week or something that we can do. So constructive conflict, it's a conflict, but you're going to deal with it constructively. Uh, you're not trying to, you're not saying, I hate you, I don't love you anymore because we don't get time together. You're just basically saying, hey, I'm sensing in our relationship. And that can even happen friend to friend. Hey, brother, I don't see you that much anymore. Let's have a lunch. You know, so that's, that's the constructive kind of uh, conflict. Now, we already learned in the very first lesson that was taught by Jeremiah that the Bible exposes the true source of conflict, conflict, whether in personal relationships, the church, or in marriage relationships. And the true source of conflict is when we are sinfully pursuing our own ambitions, even to the destruction of the relationship. Take a look in James, you'll see what I mean, chapter 4. We, we learned that, you should have learned that at the very beginning. James chapter 4. I love it when the Bible does this. You're dealing with the topic of conflict, and how does he open up the verse? What is the source? <laughs> of conflicts and quarrels. Interesting, uh, the word uh, conflict in the original language means, uh, refers to like an atmosphere uh, or an attitude of adversarial dislike. And then 
And then con quarrels are the battles, the skirmishes of the mindset. Let me see if I can explain that better. Conflict describes the mindset. There's an adversarial relationship in existence. Quarrels are the battles that, that are fought because of the atmosphere of an adversarial nature. So that's what he was saying right at the beginning. What's the source of that uh, among you? And then he says, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? The word pleasures comes from the Greek word hedona. We get hedonism from it. Hedonism is the philosophy that the greatest importance in life is gratifying your personal pleasures. Here it's pleasures that are selfishly and fleshly driven, even to the destruction of relationships. Really, you could say it's selfish sin that causes destruction to relationships. I don't know if you've ever been around a very self-centered, self-promoting, selfish person. It's not a pleasant thing especially if you live with them <laughs> or a self-centered, self-gratifying person who has an entitlement mentality. It's very, very tough. And so the Bible is saying this is the kind of mindset that creates sinful selfishness driven by the passion to uh, satisfy your sinful appetites, no matter what. Scorched earth. I've met people that have they're dedicated. They don't care even if the relationship is harmed. They're going to get their way. You see, and that, by the way, is, as a counselor, you're done. There's not much you can do, you know. But it, but he's he's just pointing to that. He says, "You lust." Verse two: You do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So what he is trying to point out to us there in those passages, when he says commit murder, um, in, in scripture, Jesus mentioned, for example, you have heard that it was said that if you commit murder, you, you're guilty uh, before the Supreme Court. But I say, if you call your brother empty head, if you speak to your brother in a, in a, a derogatory manner, by God's estimation, you committed murder in your heart of that person. So in other words, God measures murder not so much by the act, the act, certainly, but the attitude. And so people hate another person because they're in the way of the pursuit of their self-serving passion. So they actually develop a hatred for them, which is equivalent to murder. So that's why James says you commit murder. Um, well, let me show you 1 John. Look in 1 John. Didn't want to get too much into this, but I want to make sure you get it. 1 John chapter 3. This probably highlights it the best. Chapter 3. Verse 14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life. We've left the realm of spiritual death and entered into the realm of spiritual life. How do we know that? Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. He's still dead spiritually. Everyone who hates his brother is what? A murderer. Because in God's estimation, when you hate someone, you've got the attitude. You just haven't committed the act. And you may not commit the act because you're afraid of the consequences of the act. But your mindset is already hatred. 
And so he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So uh, that's what we want to avoid. We don't want to get into caustic relational conflict to the point of where we develop hatred for one another. That last paragraph says, according to the, on your notes again, according to the scripture, the source of conflict is a selfish pursuit of personal pleasures or ambitions. And there are several biblical imperatives and exhortations that must be applied in this context. Chief among them is to emulate the other centered, humble attitude of Jesus that Paul addressed in Philippians 2, 3 through 11. Remember, uh, that's where he says to what, well, look at Philippians. I'm trying to save my time, but I just feel like I can't excuse these verses. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, he says, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. What's nothing in the Greek? That's right, nothing. <laughs> Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. Can I tell you something, folks? That goes against my natural grain. We are just born to look out for self first, so we have to act contrary to who we naturally are. You say, why? Well, because Christ left us an example that we need to follow, and he'll get to that. He says in verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. So the attitude he's just describing, this humble pursuit of other people's best, is the mindset of Christ. And then he shows you how that mindset was worked out. Verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why did he do that? Because he was in pursuit of our best. He left the glory of heaven. He left the place where every one of us want to go. He left that place to come to this earth to bear the cross so that we might live. And so that's the mindset of Christ. Now, if I've got this mindset, can I just tell you, if I establish that mindset that I want to be other-centered, I want to humbly pursue what's best for others, you really are not in a mindset um, for pouring gasoline on conflicts because you're other-centered. It's self-centered people that are looking for an argument or a conflict to happen. You see what I mean by that? And by the way, the selfish people that I've met in my life are the most miserable people I've ever met in my life because they demand that everybody does something for them and that's not the way the world works. And so they get very frustrated and very, very upset at the world they live in, the people. Uh, there's nothing, <laughs> nothing as sickening to be around an entitled person who's self-centered and they're demanding of you that you give them something. <laughs> it's like, oh Lord, can I call fire down right now? You know, that's what you feel like at that point, but you can't. So anyways, uh, next 
after go back to the paragraph. In addition, there is the principles involved in the conflict to walk by the spirit, which in turn produces the fruit of the spirit. So you don't walk by the flesh, you walk by the spirit. If you walk by the spirit, then you got what? Love, joy. Listen to all these things, how relationally beneficial they are. Love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, gentleness, all of those fruit of the spirit being you being under control of the spirit are all conducive for a good marriage, a good relationship, no matter what it is. You see what I mean? So be controlled by the spirit. Walk by the spirit. Walk means to order your behavior according to the spirit. Uh, and then remember the directive in the bottom there. Remember the directive of our Lord to seek to be reconciled with those who have something against you. In the body of Christ, Jesus commanded us to love one another. So we must always love one another. If we're not, we're in disobedience. Matter of fact, Jesus said that this is your testimony of the transformational nature of the gospel. That people can look into the church and see the mutual exchange of Christ-like love. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I always, that's uh, John chapter 13, 34, and 35. Uh, I've always found that to be interesting because basically what Jesus is doing is he's giving the unsaved world the right to judge whether you are a disciple of Jesus. And the basis of that judgment is will they see the mutual exchange of Christ-like love amongst you. Uh, I love it. I was at the newcomers night, Friday night, Cindy and I were there. And the thing that was really cool is when people said that that's what they experienced here. And I go, okay, that's good. That's what we want. Because Jesus does not say, they'll know that you are my disciples by the particular version of the Bible you carry or by the particular church that you attend. No, it's the love exchange, and that's what we do, and that is a great deterrent to conflict. Okay, so now let me give you some practical ways to deal with conflict. These are, um, remember I told you that there's three ways of looking at things. Some things are biblical and must be obeyed, must be learned, must be defended, <clears throat> must be memorized. That's great. <clears throat> there are some things that are not biblical, but helpful. <clears throat> the five love languages, excuse me. <clears throat> the five love languages, you know, the book by the five love languages. Um, that's, you can't find that in the Bible. The Bible says, uh, husbands love your wife. And be sure to find out which one of those five that really rings her bell. It doesn't say that, but it's helpful, isn't it? To know, hey, maybe this is a way. I remember I went home and I asked her after I, I was in his class, the author of that book, I was in his class on pastoral counseling. And um, so I went home and I said, um, what would that I ask you? Well, can I, how can I be more romantic? That's what it was. I'm still, I'm still, what did you mean by the ship, that ship sailed? I don't know. The, <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out. Somebody help me out. No, she, 
She said this. I said, how can I be more romantic? She said, you can help me uh, wash the dishes. And I think first, my first thought as a man, hey, I got off cheap. No big dinner, <laughs> flowers, candy. Um, and th but then the second thing she said is, you, you know, when you're out and about, be nice. She loves Snickers bars. Um, Cindy eats a Snicker bar over the course of six to seven months. And I'm not kidding. Just a little. I eat Snicker bars three to four seconds. <laughs> <laughs> so she does, right? You have those little things. Yeah. So she said, you could buy one. And then I said, well, help me understand this. How, how is that romantic? And she said, well, if we're washing the dishes together, I have your full attention. You're helping me to achieve a, a, a job that, to, you know, to get it done, and we can communicate with each other. You know? So then being a man, once again, I said, well, how can we communicate without me ever to be involved in the dishwashing thing? <laughs> and then I said, what about the Snickers bar? And she said, well, it tells me that during the course of the day, you were thinking of me. Okay, that's pretty cool. So in other words, ask. You do ask. But what the whole point of this thing is of the five love languages. And what I'm about to give you, there are these things do cross paths with Scripture, but they're non-biblical helpful. Can I tell you? Then the third thing is non-biblical. Absolutely not biblical. And I'm not going to teach you that ever, but I'm going to tell you what's biblical. So let's go. And remember, what we're trying to do is we're trying to dissolve conflict from turning into destructive conflict, okay? So step number one, attack the problem, comma, not the person. Sometimes couples and friends have to realize what's the real issue here. What are we really conflicting over? And you will never get to that if out of your mouth are personal attacks right away. Because personal attacks arouse the defensiveness of the person who gets them. So at that point, nobody's interested in understanding how did this happen? How, how, how did this take place? I had a couple one time who had a huge explosion in their house between the two of them in conflict. And I said, well, tell me the details of it. And what it was is that um, the wife's mother on Saturday morning loved to have the family over and she would make them pancakes and all of that. And well, he came from home from work on a Wednesday and he was tired and, you know, he's beat from the day. And she said, don't forget, we're going to mom's for pancakes. And he went off the chain. He started yelling and screaming. And I'm not, she's running our, our schedule. You know, there are some Saturdays where I just would like to be off and not do anything. And then he's going on and on. And he's, oh, just really bad. So they come to me. And so they tell me the nature of the problem. So the whole thing was over pancakes, I guess. And he, whether you eat them, but it was no, it wasn't more. As I probed into it and found out, this guy had some unresolved conflicts with his mother-in-law. So we had to deal with that in order to fix that Saturday thing. Do you understand that? 
So a lot of times, you, sometimes you have to probe, what's the real issue? And be honest with people. Don't beat around. If you've got a real issue, please say it right away in conflict because you, that's what you want to deal with. You don't want to deal with the manifestation of the issue. The manifestation was the argument and the explosion that happened on Wednesday and the separation that it caused. That's the manifestation. But you've got to fix the problem. And you'll never fix the problem if you spend time assassinating one another's character. So you look for the problem. What's the problem? So we can work on that. You got that? Any questions about that one? You got it? Good. Because I will attack you. No, I won't. <laughs> Next, number two, and this is a hard one. Fix the problem, comma, not the blame. <laughs> That's the way we generally start out, you know, the conflict is we state the problem and then give the blame to whoever the person is that we're at odds with. You know, it's you, it's your fault. My mother was right about you, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> never, guys never like to hear that, ladies, in case you ever, guys don't like that thing. Unless your mother said great things about him. And then they'll say, oh yeah, your mother was right. <laughs> but in other words, you start to get veering away again from the central idea because you're trying to find the blame when in fact if you really dig into the problem you might find out that both of you have a contribution and both of you need to repent and change your mind sometimes that's the issue that's why I keep going back to the problem what's the problem what's the problem I'm not as simple as uh, Dr. Albert Moeller in his marriage counseling he always asks three questions. He makes three statements to him. What's the nature of your problem? That's the first statement. Second, what does the Bible say about that? Third, why are we here? In other words, if you know what the Bible says about it, why are you asking me? <laughs> it's kind of a difficult. I'm, I'm not that way. If you ever need counseling, I won't give you. I've got 10 questions that I ask and not three. No. But the, the, again, what's, what's the problem? Don't fix the blame. Don't attack the person. Get to the problem. Get to the problem. Now, number three has to do with, well, what if, what if the two of us, and again, it could be just friendships or marriage relationships, whatever. What if we can't seem to resolve the real issue? We know what the problem is. We're just not able to come to a mutual way to solve it. Number three, seek wise counsel, comma, not a coalition. <clears throat> a coalition, by definition, means a group of like-minded people. <laughs> so don't go get counseling and say, you know, my husband is Godzilla. He's the nastiest thing in the whole world. And mom, don't you agree? Yes, he is. And there's the guy sitting there by himself. No, you, you want wise counsel. Why, why do you want wise counsel? Because wise counsel is always objective counsel. I actually have to tell people when I do marriage counseling, I want to tell you at the beginning, I'm on no one side but God. So don't, don't get angry. And people get angry with me because they have gotten. One person got up from the chair and started walking home. 
And I'm thinking, okay, well, the guy stayed. <laughs> and I said, don't you want to do any, go and get her or whatever? And he said, no, she always does that. She'll make it home. Her home was far away, you see. And so you look at that and you think, wow, that's, but if you want the counselor to be on your side, unless it's clearly true, you know, clearly you were the innocent victim, but be there to find out if he points out a few things about you and what you're doing. It's hard, but sometimes we're both contributing. We just need somebody to see that in us and point those out so we can correct them because that's the only way I'm going to fix the situation. But I'm not going to look for people to agree with me. <clears throat> that's why it's not good men to be in a gathering and saying, you know, my wife is... Do you guys all agree? Yeah, those women... But what are you doing with that? That's not doing anything. Or ladies, you know about my husband? Don't, please, don't dis disrespect your husband in public ever. And men, don't do that either by that sort of talk. You go and you get wise counsel. You find out who can give you an objective, an analysis of what's going on in that relationship. And then you follow the counsel. And yes, it may hurt, but don't get mad at him. Uh, I've been on the end of that several times. It's not a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I'm just, you, just, you came to me. I don't know why you're mad at me. I'm telling you what I see here. So seek counsel. Number four. This is a big one. Seek to get right, comma, not to be right. This is a matter of values. Uh, in other words, what is it that you're going to value? Uh, I want to be right in this argument. That's my value. Well, that's already caustic, that attitude at the very beginning. When you have conflict, especially as believers, we want to seek to be right with each other. We want to be reconciled with each other. And that may be me realizing that I'm not right, I'm wrong. Or at least I'm wrong in certain areas. And so I need to correct that. Uh, I have found that to work very, very well. If you develop an attitude toward reconciliation, that's what this is. Listen, I want to meet with you, or I, honey, we need to talk because I want to get something right. Um, and by the way, I may be wrong. I may be misunderstanding. Remember those two, two women you never want to show up at your home or, or your church. Miscommunication and misunderstanding <laughs> because they cause a lot of trouble. And so that happens to people. So you want to seek to get right and not to be right, necessarily. Number five. <laughs> do it now, comma, not later. <laughs> you know, cancer doesn't stop, generally speaking. It grows. And if you have a cancer, caustic relationship, time is not going to bring it back. The absence of you uh, not meeting together and speaking about the issue doesn't make it better. It, there has to be a time when you get together and, uh, and you have to talk about those, whatever that is. Uh, sometimes I tell couples, 
Uh, matter of fact, well, let me give you the, the next one, and then because it goes along with this one, do it now, not later. But number six is pray it up, comma, pray it up before you bring it up. Make prayer a priority. Ask God, you know, boy, today at noon I'm going to meet with my dear friend and we've been hassling. Heavenly Father, please grant to me the wisdom that I need, uh, the ability to communicate in love with great patience and that love and mercy and kindness. Uh, please, Lord, help us. Give us the wisdom to work it out. Pray about that. And then in marriage, a good thing for you to do, when you sense that you're... You're both getting hot. You know what I mean by that? You're getting, you're getting ready to take a swing. Let me encourage you to take a demilitarized zone for a little minute. What is that? Go off in two separate places in your house and pray about this item you're talking about. Separately. And it's amazing how many times that works when you come back together. <laughs> First of all, it brings the level of your temperature down. Just that little, okay, Heavenly Father, I was just in there with my wife. Ooh, ooh, you're Mr. T, you know, and you're, and you're angry and stuff. But as you continue to pray, it just calms the heart down, you know. And now you're, guess what? You're more able to be reasonable when you're calmed, you see. So I, I tell couples, hey, Go to another place and um, take a break and pray and ask God for wisdom, if you can do it. But there are times when you actually have to do that. You actually have to say, listen, honey, I'm, we're not getting anywhere here. I'm getting angry. You're getting angry. Can we take a break? And why don't we just go and pray? Pray about it. And when you do that, you have a better opportunity to be reasonable, to be rational, and to make a sound decision. You got that? I've got one more that's not there. It's a number seven, because I had to have a seven, because seven's the perfect number of God. <laughs> Jeremiah has 16-point sermons. That is like in the holy of holies of God. It's really good. Number seven, search the scriptures and not your subjective reasoning. Search the scriptures and not your subjective reasoning. In other words, when you're dealing with a problem, uh, it's the same thing that Erwin Lutzer told me many, many, many years ago, 1977, in Moody Coffee Cove. Um, I was a married student. He was a professor. He became the pastor of Moody Church. Some of you have heard him on radio and such, but... Um, uh, I made a comment to him that I'd be a better Christian if it weren't for temptation. And he said, I disagree. And I thought I just made as a student a profound statement. <laughs> and I said, why do you disagree? <laughs> he said, because a couple of reasons. He said, number one, temptation is a context for you to demonstrate your love for God by not giving into it. Smart Alec. He was right, though. 
And then he said the other thing about temptation is it causes, he used these words, it causes the scum to rise to the top. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, that's generally your weakness areas. He says, your flesh tempts you in those areas that you are, it's, it's um, put it this way, the scum that rises to the top is what you end up confessing almost every day. <laughs> so he said, you know what you need to do? Go to the Bible and find out everything it says about that. So when I say, um, search the scriptures, that's what I mean. Not your subjective reasoning. Uh, one of the things that I always see as a problem is when we go to our subjective reason, reasoning to, to repair a relationship, when God speaks so much to relationships, it's better to get the counsel from his word. Uh, I don't know about you, but there's been at least three times this year that my subjective reasoning was in error. You didn't realize it was just now the fourth. <laughs> Yeah, there were a lot of times when my subjective reasoning, subjective reasoning is uh, how I feel, how I think, what I've experienced. Uh, those don't always lead you to truth. The object of authority or the object of truth is the Word of God. So well, let me ask this question. How many people have ever felt something and found out it was wrong? Okay, now i got more takers on that one. Yeah, well, I can't trust that. I can't, unaided by Scripture, I just can't trust my subjective reasoning, especially when I'm dealing with conflict. I, I, need, to be, I need to be certain because I don't want to damage relationships that are treasures to me in life, so I want to handle them with care. You see what I mean? So that's good. Now, any questions on this? Yes, ma'am. No. But how do you distinguish between conviction that I believe comes with feeling and scriptural background? Yeah. Backup, yeah. But how do you distinguish between that and just a strong feeling? Do you know what I mean? Sure. Like how, what is I think it kind of answered your own thing at the beginning there is uh, you said it's uh, conviction with feelings, but it's also supported by scripture. I'm not wording it the way you did. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, but I mean, like, I think that there's an element where you could almost always, if you have a strong feeling that seems to be lined up, you could almost always back it up with some sort of scripture. Sure, yeah. Because you oh, could I always see. go to James 4.17, like, if something is right and you do not do it, yeah. you are sinning. You know what I mean? Sure. Let me say, first of all, just so you know, that feelings um, are found in God. <laughs> and it's about uh, part of being created in the image of God. We have intellect, emotions, and uh, uh, will. Uh, and there are times when you can have a deep conviction that keeps coming, that it's best to pursue. In other words, to find out. Sometimes we have to investigate uh, a feeling before we act on the feeling. Um, like one time a, a person, a friend of mine, wasn't talking to me for a while. And um, so I went to him and said, hey, brother, is there, are we okay? And, uh, you know, he started, you know, saying, 
uh, no. He said, There's, everything is fine. It, but so I, what I did is I, I went to the person to make sure that my feeling was justified. And you know, I'm taking him at his word, and everything was fine. It's just, it was a feeling. And I, don't, I think if, you, if it persists, feelings have a tendency to come and go, but I think when they persist, there's some investigation. But I don't want to act on them. I, I didn't want to say, well, I think this brother has something against me. I tell you what, I'm not going to talk to him again. You see what I mean? I'm acting now on something I've felt, but I haven't investigated it to see if there was any reality. So that's the danger part. Um, uh, I know for uh, some men in marriage that have, uh, like for example, they come in to walk into the house and, hi, honey, how are you doing? And she's at the kitchen sink and she's crying. She's, she's washing the dishes and then he goes up to her and he says, honey, what's, what's the matter? And she says, nothing. Uh, well, uh, you're, you're crying, and then she sometimes makes it worse by saying, well, if you really loved me, you'd know. <laughs> now he's really, what do I do with this? <laughs> Did I? And then the worst thing he does is he starts opening his mouth. It's, it's because I don't like the way your hair is cut. <laughs> I didn't like that dress. It made it kind of look a little large, you know. Um, no, and so sometimes you, you, you leave people in a, place that's dangerous for the relationship so it's best to take a feeling if it's persistent go and find out if it's real but try not to act because sometimes we think sometimes people can make a statement that hurts you and they don't know that they hurt you that happens to me a lot because I'm sort of sarcastic and people have had to come to me and say hey man that really hurt when you said Yikes, I didn't mean that. And that's good because we're fixing the relationship. And I'm being warned about that, which is good for me. Uh, but sometimes people don't know. And you could be dying inside, and they don't know that. And so you have to go in and find out what's going on. It's a great question, though. It's very good. Anyone else? Man, I must be a great teacher. This is amazing. So from now on, all marriage relationships and all friendships will be of the highest order from this day forward, right? Okay, how about we go? <laughs> That's true. Let's take a look at briefly the uh, Romans 14 again. Remember what this is all about. Look in Romans 14. I'm going to let you read a lot of those notes. Some of them I might reference but um, I wanted to go into this because uh, in my experience as a pastor over 50 years uh, I have found that we can have serious disagreements matter of fact churches have split over some of these areas I mean, completely split or at least serious damage has been done to churches over the whole issue of debatable areas. People won't attend that church because they believe strongly 
that the King James Version is the inspired translation, and they use the ESV. So I'm not going to that church. Uh, so people do, oh, I'm not going there. If we were really godly, all of our music would be sacred music. Played only by a piano and an organ. And so they do that. So, I'm, so people even choose churches and refuse to go to churches over these kinds of... One, one tell you a true story, true story. A, a young couple came to our church years ago, years ago. And um, he was a really good drummer. We used him for a little while in our worship team. And so he went, to, decided to join the church. And so we met with them as the elders do. We're going through their testimony. And then he said this to me. He said, you know, I'll be willing to join this church if you will add to your requirement for membership an abstinence statement that everybody becomes a member of this church will abstain from all alcohol. So when you join the church, you would be making that a part of the membership requirement. And I remember saying to him, I said, brother, um, you need to understand, just as we respect what the Bible says, we must equally respect what it doesn't say. And it doesn't say, the Bible does not teach total prohibition. Now, I, I want to tell you this by saying to you, just a bit of background, I hate alcohol. But it's not because of anything I found in the Bible. It's because I watched my father die at the age of 59 from it. Because I saw my two brothers almost destroy their entire lives because of consumption of alcohol. So I do not, I have chosen not to have any drinks whatsoever. But I cannot stand up before New Community Church and say, Thus saith the Lord. You are to totally abstain. You can't have a beer. You can't have a glass of wine. I can't do that. Why? Because I do not have the Word of God's authority to support that statement. That's a debatable area. Do you understand that? So I told him and said, We cannot make such a requirement because the Bible does not make a requirement for membership on that basis. You get that? But it's sad because they left us. They left us. And I, I even told them my life story. I, I mean, going out and getting my brother in 22 degree weather, my mom would send me out to try to find him and I'd find him in a neighborhood laying in the grass covered with snow, drunk as can be. Later on, he got pneumonia, and it gave him COPD, and that took his life. You see what I mean? So I, I do not have a good feeling, <laughs> talk about feeling, toward alcohol of, of any sort. Now, there are people that handle it very well, and that's fine. And I cannot, as I said, tell people that if you want to be a better Christian, <laughs> you know I can't say that. Uh, I might say you want to be a happier Christian. No, <laughs> I can't say that either. But the point is, we can't allow these things to get to that point where we separate, we, uh, you know, do things. Matter of fact, uh, 
let me show you point number one, just to, so I don't use up all the time here. And again, there's some great reading here. It's found on uh, page two, flip side. Um, paint, page two says, we must avoid treating one another with contempt or condemnation over disputable matters. If you look at the 14th chapter, verses one and two, uh, it says, now accept the one who is weak in faith. And I'm explain what weak in faith means, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. So right away, what we're talking about is the issue is opinions. It's not an issue of thus saith the Lord. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Remember I told you that one of their problem was diets? That's what he is talking about in the Roman context. There are certain believers who said, I am not going to eat that meat that came from the marketplace because surely it was offered to an idol before it was sold. And that's true. And the idol temples would sacrifice animals and they would bring the extra meat and they would raise money that way. They would sell it in the marketplace. But you didn't know where that meat came from. It was this it was available. And so some believers said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Other believers said, hey, all good things come from God and need to be enjoyed with thankfulness. So thank God and eat. <laughs> and so there was this debate and there was a developing animosity. Contempt means to look at a person with disdain. Boy, is that caustic relationally. <laughs> and it was over these issues. And so he said, don't do that. And in verse three, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt. The one who does not eat and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats for God has accepted him. We are never in the body of Christ to reject people that God has accepted, even with their idiosyncrasies. And like, uh, Dr. Warren Worsby used to tell us, he said, remember the people in the body of Christ. He said, they're all like snowflakes. He said, they're, you know, snowflakes are, everyone's different. Did you know that? Try to catch one to find out everyone's different. But then Worsby said, and in the church, some people are more flakier than others. <laughs> uh, but if they've been accepted by God and they have a different perspective on debatable issues, that must not, that does not give you a license for treating someone with disdain. Do you understand? When he mentions weak in faith, that doesn't mean that they have a weak faith in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. That means that they have not developed in the Christian faith to the level of where their conscience is now free to, for example, a Jew going to the marketplace. Hey, I'm born again. I've learned all good things come from God. I like that stake right there. In other words, they've developed. <clears throat> and we're going to learn that it's not good to stay in the condition of weak. But the stronger person he's mentioning is the person who's developed in the faith. And they have a freedom of conscience to participate in that which may be debatable. Do you understand that? So that, that's what he's talking about. Don't, don't, I don't have a right in the body of Christ to treat another brother or sister in contempt because he's going to vote for President Trump 
or because he's not going to vote for President Trump, or here's one, he got the shot and you didn't get the shot or whatever it is, I have no right to treat with contempt a person who has an opposing view on debatables. Number two, which is found on page three. We must learn the difference between what is commanded in scripture and what is a matter of personal opinion. Remember, what does he say there in 14.1? Now, except the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing opinions, passing judgment on his opinions. Yeah, we, we need to learn what's the difference between an opinion and what's scripture. Uh, the illustration I gave you. That's what I was trying to do with that young man who wanted me to have the church sign in abstinence clause. Th that's an opinion. That's not scripture. I'm not going to, brother, if you want to hold that opinion to yourself, you can, you're gonna, you can keep it. By the way, I, I think I'm going to come up on this principle, but one thing that's really important, very important to get, uh, your convictions are your convictions. That doesn't necessarily mean they're bad. But it does mean that you cannot demand corporate compliance with your convictions. If you cannot find, thus saith the Lord. You get that? Very important. Your convictions are your convictions. Uh, I, I don't think it's a good thing to come to the body of Christ on the Sunday in order to convert people, to evangelize people to your convictions. You see what I'm saying? This is not the place for fighting over your convictions versus someone else's convictions. So make sure you keep it. He's actually going to say that here, but I just felt that it should have been injected in there. Uh, the next point, again, I just want to speak to each one of these if I can. Number three is on page four. It's not desirable for those who are weak to remain in that condition. Uh, one of the things that you have to be careful of in the body of Christ is what is called the tyranny of the weaker brother. Pastor, I'm offended. I'm offended by, I'm offended by this and I'm offended by that. And, and you know, uh, every, everybody must, must not offend me because they have a different position, really. I don't mind if a brother says, boy, I'm offended by people not obeying the word of God. I, I'm, I agree. But because they don't hold up to your preferences, you're offended. I mean, so you got to, a church leadership always has to be protective of the tyranny of the weaker brother, but they also have to be protective of the tyranny of the stronger brother. What's the matter with these people? Why can't they enjoy Christian liberty? They're legalist. Every one of them. Fix it. No, come on. If people have differing ideas, their convictions are their convictions. Fine. God will work in their heart with his word. He'll do what he's going to do. But I can't, a church leader cannot succumb to the tyranny of the weaker brother and he cannot succumb to the tyranny of the stronger brother. Because we're not talking about Thus saith the Lord. You get that? 
and remaining weak is not an ideal situation. I, I don't think you should be proud. I just want everybody to know here that I am the weaker brother. <laughs> That's nothing to be proud of. But what, what you're saying is I'm still immature. I, I need to develop maturity. Now, you still might develop maturity and still take the position you're taking, <clears throat> but staying in the condition of weakness is not a good thing. Number four, on disputable matters, cultivate your own convictions. We kind of said that 14.5. <clears throat> he says, uh, one person regards one day above another. Another day regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in their own mind. It's your conviction. That's fine. But it doesn't have to be everybody else's conviction. You can't demand that. Uh, I think in the paragraph under that one, just read that. In addition to having a problem with meat sold in the marketplace, Apparently, some of the Jewish believers just could not break themselves of observing the Sabbath and doing no work on the Sabbath, while others in the family of God did not share these scruples and function for, uh, from the standpoint that God's church is not commanded to observe the Sabbath. It's true. They did not look upon six days as secular and one day as sacred. They looked upon each day as an opportunity to serve the Lord and to bring him glory. But if you have a conviction that uh, Pastor Bill Johnson from the church I was at when I was uh, on staff there in Illinois, uh, he was rushing to see his mother after church service. His mother was in an uh, assisted care and her health was failing. So he got finished with the sermon. He told the staff, he said, listen, greet the people. I've got to go. I got a phone call. And so he left the church and he went over to the gas station and he got some gasoline for his car because he had to go up north, the northern part of Chicago. And uh, he got a letter in the mail from one of the members, a pastor, I'm so disappointed. My heart sunk to see you doing business on the Sabbath day. We are not subject to the Old Testament Sabbath restrictions. Matter of fact, it says in the command that the Sabbath restriction was given to Israel because six days you shall work and on the seventh they give rest because he was reminding them, he says, because I want you to remind you of the place I took you. When they were slaves in Egypt, what were the benefit package on that? <laughs> they worked when? Every day. They, any day. They were forced to work, right? So he's trying to remind them, listen, you need rest. Your body needs rest. You need time to reflect upon me as a nation. But he does not repeat that command in the New Testament for you and I. And so there are people in churches that believe that Sunday you should not do any business. You do, you not do any business. You go home and take a nap. Don't spend any money. Now, I agree with the nap part of it. <laughs> Never take a nap in church. You say, why? Because in the Bible, it has a record of a guy who died. <laughs> what did he do? He fell asleep. What? Paul was preaching. 
No, it does say it was going on a long time and there was a lot of candles. And, and he died, right? He fell out a window, broke his neck. And then I just want to remind you that none of the staff here at New Community Church have the capacity to bring you back to life <laughs> if you fall out of your chair. I just want to, just as a caution, just to remind you of that, you know. So, all right, let's see if we can get... Uh, let's go on to the next one. Five, undisputable matters. The Lordship of Christ is the foundational truth for unity in the church amidst diversity of opinion. If you look at 14, 6 through 9, uh, he says there in that passage, he who observes the day, observes it for the Lord, and he who eats, does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. For no one of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or we die, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether you live or die, we are the Lord's. In other words, the thing that is most important is living for the Lordship of Christ. That's the thing. It's living in submission to his Lordship. That's what you want to make as a priority. Number six. In all matters, we are accountable to God. Even where you take a position, you're accountable to God. Uh, 14, uh, verse, uh, verse 4, he says, um, Who are you to judge the servant of a another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, by the way, this lends itself a little bit to the idea where some people say you, you shouldn't judge anybody. They would say, doesn't it say here, you, you don't judge your brother? What issues are we talking about? Debatable issues, because what's absent? Thus saith the Lord. However, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says concerning a man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law, or his stepmother, he said, I have judged him already, and you need to do the same thing. Because he was in violation of the word of God, not an opinion, not a position in a debatable area. He was acting contrary to God's word. And so the whole church has to practice church discipline. You know what that is? That's the judgment of the church that a brother or sister is disobeying God's word. But you never get disciplined because you eat meat or you don't eat meat or because of you got the shot or you didn't get the shot, although some people wanted me to discipline people in our church. No. In other words, people can go too far with these things. But that's very important. He's not, it's just not a, when God, when Christ said, judge not lest you be judged, he was not talking about, he was not saying all judgment's wrong. He was saying hypocritical judgment's wrong. When you're pointing the finger at people and you're doing the same thing. He said at that point, you haven't, you haven't taken the log out of your own eye. You see, that's what he means. It's hypocritical judgment when you're doing that. Isn't all judgment hypocritical from sinners? Pardon me? Isn't all judgment hypocritical from sinners? Like, if nothing, like we, just like we've said in previous classes, like nothing that someone else has done to us is greater yeah. than what we've done <clears throat> in offense to God. Yeah, but I think in the case of the Pharisees, which was one of the primary audiences there, they were always indicting people 
for things that they practiced all the time, and Jesus knew it. So he's saying that's hypocrisy. Uh, I'm a hypocrite when I disobey God. I am in compliance with the righteousness of God when I confess that. I'm actually living righteous when I confess. If I'm going to live with the hypocrisy, that's different. You know, so that's the, the issue. All right, uh, number six that I say, all matters were accountable. We looked at that. I'm running out of time. So let me just give you the next ones, make mention of them. Um, <clears throat> on page six, number seven, never cause your fellow believer to stumble in the exercise of their liberty. <clears throat> um, uh, we had an actual situation I experienced where a young couple was invited by another couple who are sort of cutting edge kind of people in our church in those days. And uh, they invited them for dinner and the man brought out some wine and started uh, giving the couple, the new couple, some wine along with the dinner. Uh, the problem is he didn't bother to investigate. This man became radically changed, new birth in Christ from being an alcoholic. <laughs> And so the young man said to this man who had been mature in the faith, so we can do this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we can do this. What happened to that young man? We had to go dig him out again. You know what I mean? So don't be careful of where, put this, love limits liberty. Love limits liberty. I'm going to be careful with those kind of debatable areas about showing off my liberty in the face of other people. Um, I'm going to let you read the rest of these. I'm going to finish up with this illustration. Thank you, by the way, for being here for this. I hope it's been helpful. But uh, I got a telephone call once about 2.30 in the morning. And... Uh, it was this young college student newly started attending our church back in Chicago. And he said, Pastor Jerry, I'm sorry to wake you up. And I'm thinking, okay, did he get, is he in the hospital? What's the problem? He said, I've got a question to ask you. You want to think, can it wait? You know, I said, yeah, what's up? His name was Jerry as well. He said, I went out with a bunch of college kids from the church. And we went to downtown Chicago to Gino's Pizza, which is great pizza, pizza pie. It's that thick. Big pizza pie. And he said, um, he said, they started ordering pitchers of beer. And he said, and now, and he said, as the night went on, they started telling each other filthy stories, like filthy jokes. And he said, and when I asked them if we should be doing that, now, I'll tell you about him in just a minute. He asked, should we be doing that? And he said, hey, we're under grace. That's a terrible misunderstanding of grace. Grace has come to free you from sin, not liberate you to sin. You see. Now, the, the sad thing is Jerry was the, um, he was in the fraternity house before his conversion. He was the fraternity house party man. He was the one in northwestern Illinois who got all the kegs of beer and 
invited all the girls. He was the party man. And then some, uh, some college students shared the gospel with him and he got saved, radically saved. So he was perplexed on that phone. He said, I, I just witnessed what I witnessed in the fraternity house. That's living under grace? I said, no, Jerry, that is not. They were badly mistaken. That's not what it means to live under grace. So, love limits liberty. If I were with those college students and you had a brand new guy with you that you don't know the background, I'm certainly not going to do something like that because you are not to cause your brother to stumble. And that's talking about trip them up spiritually. You mess with their spiritual progression by doing something stupid. Okay? So that's a sad end way to end this class. If you're interested in, uh, how many people are interested in Christmas?